Well, this morning, um, if we have any visitors, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead pastor here at Lakeside, and we're glad to have you uh, this morning. And if you come back next week, the elders are actually cooking breakfast for you. And uh, so come at 8.55, that's on purpose, so you remember. And uh, we'll have uh, pancakes and sausage and ham and all of that good stuff, and fruit and stuff for the healthy people. Um, we don't make much of that because it doesn't go very far. So, um, But that'll be here too. But yeah, we're going to have breakfast together as a church family and just uh, really celebrate Easter together. And this morning, um, quite often you deal with, on Palm Sunday, sort of the triumphal entry and you go back into the Gospels and things like that. But I, I'm going to continue in our series on Galatians because um, this morning we have a pretty unique passage that we come to in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, you can see there verses 10 to 14. And it's unique in the writings of the Apostle Paul especially, and I think it's significant that we've landed here on this week as we begin this week of Easter, because in this letter to the Galatians, Paul has been appealing to them to remain faithful to the one true gospel, that that is the, the good news that the only way anyone is made righteous, or put another way, the only way anyone is qualified before God and is able to enter into the presence of God is by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the whole argument of Paul in the first half of his letter to the Galatians. And the good news that Jesus has fulfilled the law, that we're dead to the law, the law has no hold over us, and we never want to go back to try to justify ourselves by our own self-righteousness, either either by the Jewish law or by any other sense of self-righteousness, of, of any appeal to our own goodness is of no use in justifying ourselves or qualifying ourselves. We don't want to redeem ourselves by our own work. We can do nothing. Jesus has done it all. Now, none of that is very unique. Paul teaches about that in all of his letters. He teaches the gospel. He preaches Christ crucified in letter after letter through the New Testament. Nor is it unique that Paul, as he says here at the beginning of chapter 3, reminds them that he portrayed for them the reality of Christ crucified. Prographa, you remember. He said, I painted a picture for you of Christ crucified, and that's what you trusted in. You know, the perfect sacrifice required in order that we be saved. Paul always talks about the cross, so that's not unique. But in the next few verses in Galatians 3 that we're going to look at from 10 to 14, Paul presents the cross of Jesus in a way rarely seen. In, in fact, he never talks about the cross like this anywhere else in Scripture. So it's pretty neat. And so when Paul does that, when that happens, that he speaks about the cross in a way that he doesn't speak elsewhere, I sort of sit up and take notice. And Paul's argument has not changed. He's still unpacking for us the dangerous realities of the law and the significance of the cross. But at this point in his argument, Paul's going to shed light on it in a new way that he hasn't done so before. And it's, it's important that we get it this morning. Paul sees the danger that the Galatians are in, and he sees the danger that we can easily fall into. It's the danger that the world has fallen into and does generation after generation. The danger is that we think far too lightly of the consequences of the law of God, and therefore we underestimate the glory of the cross. We fail quite often more than quite often, we fail all the time to understand the seriousness of the law and the significance of the cross. We take too lightly the condition that we're in, and therefore we cannot properly appreciate what Christ has done. 
And we do this as Christians, and the world certainly does it. And so in order to do that, Paul is going to go back into the law to lay out for the Galatians what the law has to say about those who break it. Paul's going to talk very plainly about the curse of the law. And I double-checked. Of the hundreds of times that Paul preaches about the law and the cross, this is the only place he directly addresses the curse of the law. And so we need to know about that. Because Paul has taken the time here to point this out very explicitly for us. If we're going to understand the cross, if we're going to be informed about the significance and the greatness and the glory of the cross, then we first have to understand what it means that we're in the condition that we're in, that we understand the curse of the law and what it means that Christ became a curse for us. And so Paul has to take us down before we can go up. We have to understand what it really means that the law means death to everyone. And in case we're a bit like the Galatians, I think, you know, we have to remember that they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And they didn't really know the law, but Jewish people, people we call the Judaizers in this series, people, Jewish people, the Judaizers, came to these Gentile believers in Turkey, in Galatia, and they didn't really know the law all that well, but they were trying to say you had to follow the law. And I think what Paul is doing here at this point is he wants to make sure these Gentile believers who are trying to at the same time follow the law and justify themselves by their works really understand what the law says. Because I suspect that Paul doesn't think that they actually know what the law says. And so he has to speak in these terms to them because they can't just cherry pick, you know, the nice parts of the law. They got to understand the whole law and hold to all of it. And it's a message that nobody enjoys hearing. The idea that the law cannot be kept, that we cannot be found righteous under the law, and we cannot be qualified or found justified by our own natural works or our own natural goodness. It's not a popular message, and it still isn't. But Paul has to take us down before he can take us up to the glory of the cross. And we have to understand this. This is what's going on during the ministry of Jesus, okay? Just to bring it back to to Palm Sunday. This is what's going on in Jesus' life and what led him to be crucified. It wasn't that the people hated Jesus and killed him because they hated the idea of heaven. It wasn't that they didn't like the idea of a kingdom of God. It wasn't that they didn't love the fact of the miracles. It wasn't that they didn't like the idea of peace and joy and shalom coming to Israel. That wasn't why they killed Jesus. It was because they would not accept the diagnosis of their condition. The Jewish people prided themselves on the fact that they were righteous before God under the law, and Jesus came along and told them the very opposite, and that's why they killed him. They didn't like what he had to say about where they stood before God. And we still do the same thing. People will not tolerate being told that they are not good, that they need a rescuer, that they are under judgment, that they need to be redeemed. And they think very little of the cross and of what Jesus did because they think very little of God's holiness and God's law. But not liking a message doesn't make it untrue. And thinking lightly of something does not make it light. It is what it is. And the diagnosis of the law is correct. We are not good. The law does condemn and we need to be rescued. And so here's where Paul takes them so that the Galatians understand and we understand exactly where we are are before God. Galatians 3, 10 to 14. Let's read. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let me just pray before we unpack this. Father God, Paul teaches us about your cross from every possible angle that he can think of. He's taught about it in terms of law versus faith. He's talked about it in terms of death versus life. Now he talks about it in terms of blessing versus curse. And we have to understand the significance of this. We have to understand the seriousness of what it means to try to be self-righteous and qualify ourselves before God by our own works. And in understanding that, if, if we can understand what Paul is pointing these Galatians to, then we can more fully and properly understand the glory of what Christ did to become a curse for us. So we pray that you would illuminate that for us in our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. So first of all is the reality and the horror of the curse. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And, I, and as I said, I suspect at this point, Paul's not even sure that his Galatian readers just understand what exactly they've gotten into when they've gotten into this whole idea of they're going to follow the law. You know, he's sort of found out that they've gotten into this idea that they accept the Messiah, they accept Jesus for who he is, but they're, you know, this law thing sounds good too. Let's dabble in that. Let's try and fulfill some of that law too. And Paul's like, you don't understand what you've just grabbed a hold of there. You don't want that. So I need to explain it to you that you will be cursed if you try to justify yourself by your own works. And Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 11 there, where God says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So now we ask, who is cursed? And the word there is everybody. Everybody who violates the law of God is cursed. Notice it's not just Israel. Not just Israel is cursed. He says, everybody who violates the law of God is cursed. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that you either have knowledge of the law given by God, like the Jewish people did, and you will be judged by that knowledge that you have of the law, or, he says in Romans chapter 2, you have the law written on your heart and you will be judged by that. But everyone knows the law one way or the other and will be judged accordingly to their knowledge of the law. And everybody means everybody. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what is the curse then? We know that everybody is cursed. This is just a statement. This is just a reality that Paul points the Galatians to to understand. But what is the curse? This is where Paul's going to take us down before he can lift us up, okay? Because he has to talk about the curse of the law, and this is never pleasant. So understand that he's eventually going to hit bottom, but he's going to bring us back up again. And, and the heart of what Paul is referring to is the curse we can find in the books of the law in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And I'm not going to put them up there because I'm just going to skim through them. But God says to his people Israel, after they cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, he says to them, I've given you my law, obey it and receive blessing. If you do not obey it, I will curse you. So obey equals blessing, disobey equals cursing. 
And then God gives Moses instructions for a dramatization to the tribes of Israel to understand how the law would work. Okay, And this is how God often acted in the Old Testament. He painted very dramatic and broad pictures for them and for us to understand so that we would learn from the people of Israel. And so God gives Moses instructions for this dramatization that takes place in Deuteronomy 27. God sends six tribes to stand on Mount Gerizim to symbolize blessing. And at the same time, he sends six tribes who stood on Mount Ebal to symbolize cursing. And that was a dramatization. It was an object lesson in how the justice of God worked through the law. Some would be blessed and some would be cursed depending on whether they obeyed or whether they disobeyed the law. And Paul wants the Galatians here to be fully aware of the law that they seem to want to obey and thus they need to remember the curses that the law entails upon them if they disobey it and everybody does. And so in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, we get the list. And I'm just going to hit the highlights of the list of the curse of the law. Because you cannot understand Galatians 3 unless you understand what the curse of the law is. And the curse that Jesus became for us. So here he goes through the curses of the law in Deuteronomy 28. I'll just pick some, some of them. The Lord will send upon you, if you do not keep my law, the Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew and they will pursue you until you perish. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. And the Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. And you will not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. And you shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. And you shall build a house, but you will not live in it. And you shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. I'm not even close to being done. It goes on. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. The most refined and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for the delicateness and refinement shall be hostile toward her husband she cherishes and towards her son and daughter and towards her afterbirth which issues from between her legs and towards her children whom she bears for she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else during the siege and the distress which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. Still not done. 
If you are not careful to observe all the words of the law which are written in this book to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues upon you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sickness. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which was not written in the book of the law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. And among those nations you shall find no rest. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. And there will be, and there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. Okay, now I'm done. But that wasn't all of it. Okay. That is the curse of the law if you fail to follow the law of God. And remember those last five words. They're important ones a bit later. No one will buy you. So there's a lot in there that I skipped over, but I think you get the idea. This is the strongest possible language applied in the strictest way. And nowhere else does Paul ever directly refer to the law or the cross in this kind of language of the curse. But this is the curse that he's talking about. Okay, when Paul says that you are, who are under the law are under a curse, this is the curse. This is what it means to fail the law. And these things happened to Israel. Okay, if you know Kings and Chronicles and Judges and those books of the Bible, you know that there is nothing in there that did not happen to Israel when they failed to honor the Lord and to keep the law. All those things, as horrific as they sounded, happened. And this dramatization is performed by God and expressed in this strict language. It's meant to accomplish something. It's meant to reveal by the consequences of the curses then just how seriousness the holiness of God is. Let's not miss this. When we read these curses, we have to understand that the curses are so severe because the holiness of God is so pure and so great and so righteous. When you break the law, you are justly punished in accordance to the severity of how you break the law, right? If you steal a candy bar, you know, you get a warning. If you steal millions of dollars and defraud widows and orphans from their money, you get a lot of jail time, you understand? And so it is just and it is right, and we understand that when a law is broken, the punishment is commiserate. It it goes with it. And so these curses are serious. They are meant to be. They are meant to bring us down into the depths. The curse of the law is horrific. The consequences of setting yourself apart from God are disastrous. When you read the afflictions that befall Israel here, and all of these happened, you think to yourself, that sounds like hell. What a hellish existence to live in that curse. And you would be right, because what is pictured for us is in the physical world, the physical reality of these curses is a shadow of the spiritual reality of what it means to be separated from the presence and the blessings of God. It is hell to be separated from God and to be apart from his blessing. And you say, hold on, that's just the Old Testament again. Doesn't, doesn't the curse of the law, th- does that even still stand? Because we're in the New Testament now, and I understand the Old Testament, and, and God seems really angry back there, but, but is that still standing? 
And yes, apart from Jesus, the curse of the law still stands. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It is not abolished. And then Jesus, as he's teaching, describes the day when he will judge. And Jesus himself says, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, in Matthew 25, 41. And when Jesus was ministering in Galilee, he cursed Chorazin and Bethsaida. And in Luke eleven thirty seven, he cursed the Pharisees and the scribes. And in Luke 17, he curses those who cause his own to stumble. The curse of the law has not been removed. And so that has to land on us. We have to understand that this is what it means to break the law of a holy and righteous and glorious God. But secondly, it's our own personal culpability in this law. 11 and 12 go on to say, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. We are culpable because we try to practice our own self-righteousness. So Paul is saying, you're going to try to live by your own works apart from faith? If if self-justification is contrary to faith, and you're going to try and make yourself, convince yourself that you are good enough, and you try hard enough to balance the scales, and that God will accept you because you were a good person, if you're going to try and practice that sort of religion, then you're going to live with the consequences of that. You have to measure up to God's law if you think you're going to try and do it on your own. You have to continue to live in the law perfectly. It doesn't do any good to live partly by the law or even wholly by the law for part of your life. You might think that you're doing really well if you went a whole year without breaking one single law. Or maybe you go two years following perfectly the law of God or 10 years or 20, but after 20 years of perfect law keeping, you break the law in one area you are cursed. There is punishment that follows. That's how the law works. That's how we all understand laws work, right? I've been a law-abiding citizen of Halliburton for almost four years now. Not really, actually, if I'm honest, right? But some of you may have lived here in Halliburton your whole life, and you may have never broken the law even once, right? All you Halibertonians who are so good and moral and perfect, you've lived here and followed the law of Halliburton County and Ontario and Canada perfectly all of your life. But the moment you break the law, it doesn't matter how many years you kept it, does it? You're guilty. A thief doesn't avoid justice because, you know, she spent some years not stealing. A murderer is not, a murderer is not excused because, you know, there was a good few years there where I didn't kill anybody. When the law is broken, you rightly and justly face its consequences. God would not be God if he was unjust. Our ju- we would kick our judges out if they let murderers go just because they spent a few years not killing somebody. That wouldn't be justice. And trust me, God is more just than any judges we have. And if we're perfectly honest, I know that none of us have actually lived our lives, even in Halliburton County, by the bylaws and the laws of Halliburton County and Ontario without breaking a single law. I came here four years ago for the first time, and I literally crossed the county line 10 kilometers an hour over the speed limit with an expired sticker on my plate. Okay? I broke the law the first second I was in the county. I hope no law enforcement officers are going to come back after me. For, what's the statute of limitations on that? Anyway, 
right? I didn't make it one second in Halliburton County without law breaking. Now forget about our laws. Forget about the speed limit. Think about God's law. Think about the holy, righteous, and pure law of God. Have I broken it? Every day. Every day. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, if you read the Ten Commandments through as you should, and you should do it very carefully, you will have to pause at each commandment and say, with solemn truthfulness, I have broken this commandment. Especially will this be the case if you remember that the truth of the law is spiritual and deals not just with actions, but with thoughts, with desires, with your imaginations and motives. Yes, with your very natural self. Surely you will have to cry, guilty, guilty, every way, and guilty every day. We do not measure up to the law of God when we are honest. The old law is not something irrelevant to us. We are all culpable. But God is not only just, he's also loving. And in his love, God has provided a way through his own law to exchange our righteousness, our unrighteousness, and our sin and our curse for righteousness and purity and blessing. And so Paul has taken the Galatians and he has taken us down into the realities of the curse of the law only to bring us back up again to show us the glorious reality of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And so that we can now see the cross in the cross exactly what Jesus has accomplished. You know, as we prayed, it's great that Steve had us just look at the cross there for those few minutes and that we would have a deeper appreciation and understanding of what the cross means. And that's what Paul is doing here for the Galatians. He has taken them down into the curse of the law and pointed at passages like Deuteronomy 28 and said, you got to go back and understand what it means to be under the curse of the law and your guilt under the law before you mess around with trying to keep the law. And instead of trying to keep the law, look, that just God who very justly and rightly deserves to punish all of us for breaking his law. He is also a loving God. And let's go up now. Let's look at what this God has done to satisfy his own law. Without breaking the law, he satisfied the law in Christ Jesus for us. And we see that in verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this is the doctrine of redemption right here. Last, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we did Galatians 2.20, and I said, that's like the Christian life in one verse. You know, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by Christ. Right? That's like the Christian life in one verse. This is the Christian message in one verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus takes on himself the curse intended for us, and we receive from Jesus the righteousness that is his. Paul describes this exchange that takes place in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become righteous of God, the righteousness of God. So Jesus was the only one not under the curse. Jesus was the only one who could look at the law and say, I'm good. That curse doesn't apply to me. I have obeyed in every way. I've never sinned. I am perfect. I am holy. I am just. And yet this one, the only one who was not cursed, 
became the curse for us so that we could be redeemed. So think about the gravity of every sin and God's just wrath towards that sin was laid on Jesus on the cross. And you can go back again to Deuteronomy 28 if you just have trouble understanding what it means that the curse of the law, the wrath of God, fell on Jesus, not just physically, but spiritually on the cross. I mean, we shrink back at the list of curses in Deuteronomy 28 because they are horrific curses and we marvel at the physical abuse that Jesus went through and we should shrink back from those curses and we should marvel at the physical punishment that Jesus bore. But they are horrible things. But people go through things like that. Many people go through horrific physical punishment. There are people going through those types of things right now, this very day. But far more horrible was the spiritual wrath that Jesus bore, which we can never comprehend. As horrific as those curses sound, as terrible as the punishment Jesus faced, it was just the physical shadow of a spiritual reality that's just beyond our comprehension. And so in the same supernatural way that he takes away our sin... And it becomes a curse for us. Jesus then gives us his righteousness. And this is what people, many people call the glorious exchange. He doesn't just take our sins. He doesn't just become a curse for us. At the same time, Jesus gives us his perfect record. We're not just dismissed of the charges against us in the courtroom. After the charges are dismissed, we get a medal of honor pinned on our chest. And we walk out the doors and there is a parade for us because we are so glorious. Our old debt to the law is paid in full and not only is it paid, but we get an inheritance of billions. It's this exchange, this glorious exchange that takes place on the cross. Remember those last five words at the end of the long list of the curses in Deuteronomy? After all those things befall Israel, all those things that befall people who disobey, they get so desperate to the point they're eating their own children, they have enemies everywhere, they even go out to try to sell their bodies as slaves simply to survive. But it finishes up and it says, but no one will buy you. How much more desperate can you get selling your body as a slave and there's not a buyer? but someone will buy you. Someone will pay your ransom. Someone loves you enough to pay that debt, even with his own life, and it's God. He will go to the cross to see you redeemed. That's what redeemed means. It means bought. It means recovered. It means restored. It means healed. As you read the Bible, you'll notice that all the writers continue to return to this subject of redemption. Paul points to it in Titus 2, 13 to 14. He says, Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You see what happened there? We're redeemed from lawlessness and purified and made righteous. That's what redemption is. Peter tells us that we're not redeemed with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless and perfect lamb in 1 Peter. And then John shows us in Revelation that gathered around the throne of God are all believers from all time singing a new song of redemption in Revelation 5. And Romans talks about redemption, and so does Corinthians and Colossians and Ephesians and the letter to the Hebrews. 
which presents the superiority of Christ as the one who redeems sinners in Hebrew 9. This doctrine, this reality of redemption gets returned to again and again and again, and yet people are struggling to accept it. We struggle to realize what we've been redeemed. First of all, before you've come to Christ, if we're honest, we struggle with the idea that we even need Jesus, right? That's the big problem out there. People are like, I'm good enough. I'm not a bad person. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Charles Manson. I haven't done anything all that bad. You know, what is so bad that I actually need to be saved? We fail to comprehend the seriousness of God's law because we fail to comprehend the holiness and the purity and the righteousness of a perfect, loving God. And so we don't understand what it means when he is not glorified the way he should be glorified. We don't understand what it means when his law is broken and how serious that is. And so we have this, people struggle to understand the value of the cross because they don't even think they're sinners. But then as Christians, even as Christians, we sometimes start to drift away and we fail to comprehend and give proper significance to what Christ has done on the cross because we have forgotten just how seriously lost we are without God. And so it behooves us, especially at this time, we benefit at this time of Easter to go back and understand what it means to be under the curse of the law. And to fully appreciate, to fully wonder and marvel and be astonished that the Son of God would come to our broken world and become that curse for us. Jesus became a curse, a byword to the nations, a proverb of horror, shunned from his own Father, from the perfection of the Trinity on our behalf. We have to glory in the beauty of what Jesus did on the cross. And there's lots of reasons why people struggle with this, you know, and I've talked about lots of them. But what is stopping us Christians from fully appreciating everything that we are in Jesus? What's stopping you from putting your trust in Jesus today? What, you know, what, what would have to be presented to you for you to comprehend the glory of the cross? What more could Jesus do? What news could be any better than that God has laid down his own life to fulfill his justice because he loved you? What exchange could be more glorious? To trade all of our weakness and fear and sin and uncertainty and the punishment that we're due under the law and trade that for his glorious righteousness and eternal presence with God. And Paul finishes in verse 14. He did this Verse 13, he became a curse for us in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of his Holy Spirit through faith. Now we've gone down to come back up and next week we're really going to go back up. This week we talk about the curse and Christ becoming a a curse for us on the cross and next week we're going to talk about the resurrection and we're going to talk about blessing. Because it's verse 14, Verse 14 is the reason that Christ became the curse, is so that we could inherit the blessing of the promise. And that's what Easter is all about. It's about the promise of God and the blessing that is coming because of what Christ did. Spurgeon, I'll finish off with last one more Spurgeon quote. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ was made a curse for us that he might deliver us from the curse of the law and that in consequence we might be blessed. As Paul just said in verse 14, he says, The flood of blessing was ready to flow along its channel, 
but the riverbed was blocked by a huge rock and the stream of blessing was dammed up by our iniquity, our sin, our wrongdoing prevents the blessing of God to come because we failed to be obedient. So what was to be done? The hindrance could only be removed by that great Lord whose hands were pierced and whose feet were nailed to the cross. He, by his great self-sacrificing act of love, lifted the rock from its place and cast it away and enabled the stream of blessing to flow freely down on all of us, all of us who had put our trust in him. That's the great exchange. Christ becomes a curse so that we can receive the blessing of God. Let's pray. Father God, it is tough. It is tough to look at your cross in this way, primarily because it holds up a mirror and it's hard for us to look at ourselves in this way. But Paul didn't shy away from this. He knew exactly what the law said. It was the diagnostic of our position before you as lawbreakers cursed under your law. And so he had to point them back to the curse. He has to point us back to the curse. We have to go back to Deuteronomy. We have to see what it means to be apart from you. But by understanding that, then we recognize and can appreciate and marvel and glory in the beauty of the cross. Because you said, this is what you deserve, but I'm going to take it. I'll fulfill my own law. I will send a son who is perfect under the law, who is not under the curse, who measures up in every way, and he will die. He will be the curse so that I can buy you out of slavery and restore you and redeem you and make you pure and righteous so you can spend eternity with me. What a great exchange. Father God, that's what we spend this week especially celebrating. I mean, we celebrate it every day of our life, but this week we want it front and center. What Christ has done on the cross, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.